Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Okay, I thought I would just amuse everybody tonight with a little uh, uh, retelling of a little episode that occurred when we were in Israel last summer. And this occurred when we had a flat tire in the West Bank. Now, there, there's Dan, I, there were like five or six pictures of Dan looking over the shoulder of this, this Arab-Palestinian-slash-terrorist. And every time he did anything, we were checking it out. But this was just a, actually, this was a, a very, very lovely spot that we went. You can see how attractive the location was. And you no- notice the fine furnishings that everybody had to, to, to sit on. Now, yeah, I'm promoting the tour. Now, that, that we, we figured that, that the Arabic on the wall said, Death to America. <laughs> oh, kill, kill, kill the white people. Okay. <laughs> and then there, there, there's another shot. It was, so we had a lot of, a lot of fun. There's, Christine climbing a tree. <laughs> you know, see, everybody's so used to seeing Christine up here singing. I just had to. <laughs> see, we always have a lot of fun on those Israel trips. All right. Okay, just had to have a couple of laughs before we got started. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer just to make sure we are in fellowship and ready to study the word, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful that we have the freedom in this nation still to gather, to study your word, to think through the things of Scripture. Father, we're thankful for the tremendous spiritual life that is revealed to us in your word, for all that was provided for us on the cross and all that is provided for us at salvation. Father, we thank you for the richness of your grace toward us and all that you have given us. And and Father, we have so often fail to really plumb the depths of what is ours in Christ and what is ours in our identification with him and being seated uh, with him 
to the right hand of your throne. And Father, as we get into these next few chapters in Hebrews, we're really going to be seeing uh, a lot of things developed by the writer of Hebrews that are not developed elsewhere in Scripture that really explain the tremendous depths and riches and the breadth of our whole spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're back in Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7. Now, last time we were in Hebrews, we got down through about verse 14, and then I took us on a little detour. We, we went down a side trail to go through a orientation to dispensations and to understand why we believe in dispensations. It's not an external theology imposed on the Bible, but as we apply the basic principles of a literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic consistently to the Scriptures, then what we discover is that God has worked in different ages in different ways. There are some things in all the dispensations that stay the same, and there are other things that are different. And one of the things that changes, and whether you're a dispensationalist or not, you're forced to deal with this, forced to admit this, that there's a major shift that occurs because of the cross, and that's what's focused on in this particular chapter. Because after the, at, at the cross, the law is finished. And when the law ends, it not only ends the law, it ends the Old Testament ritual, it ends the Old Testament priesthood, it ends the whole structure of the spiritual life that is built on the ritual system that God gave to Israel. And so a new priesthood has, comes into effect by the Lord Jesus Christ at, uh, at the cross. Now, when we look at Hebrews, we have to remember as church age believers living some 1900 years or so later that we don't really read Hebrews the way the original uh, recipients read Hebrews. The original recipients were Jewish believers, probably from a priestly background, and they were deeply troubled by the fact that there was this, this new priesthood. They had spent their life dealing with the fact that they were Levites, that there was a temple in Jerusalem, that there was a uh, high priest was a descendant of Aaron, and all of the ritual associated with that and all of the ceremony that was associated with that was, was the very fabric of their life. And now they're wrestling with whether or not to go back into Judaism or and to really understand what has changed with this new revelation that's come through Jesus Christ. And that becomes the, the backdrop for this. The, the things they're wrestling with are not as uh, significant to us as Gentiles in the church age, but the implications are because it relates to Jesus Christ's ministry as a high priest. And what happens in the, in the structure of this, this epistle is as you move from the first part of chapter 7, talking about the uh, priesthood, of the high priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek, in verses 11 down through 17, actually from 11 down through 28, we see a transition. And, the, and you could, I can basically summarize what he's going to say in those verses. From 11 down to 28, in those 18 verses, he's, he's going to talk about the fact that the 
priesthood, according to the order of Aaron, was temporary, it was limited, and the priests themselves were sinners. They not only had to offer sacrifices for themselves, they had to, they had to offer sacrifices for themselves before they could offer sacrifices uh, for the people. And there were numerous priests because they all died. In contrast, what they really needed was a high priest who was sinless, who didn't need to sacrifice for himself, who was eternal and would not be replaced. And that is grounded in a verse, Psalm 110, verse 4, which is quoted in verse 21, and it's quoted again, excuse me, it's quoted in verse 17, quoted in verse 17, quoted again verse 21, and so that everything that is said between 11 and 28 is basically unpacking this one verse from the Psalms. Now, before we diverted down the dispensational track for a few a uh, few weeks, we had gone through the first, uh, four, uh, first verses 11 through 14 in this section, and now I want to go back and just review that tonight so that we get our heads back into that. So this isn't a long review, but just by way of introduction. The first thing that the writer is saying in verse 11 is that the completion of the plan of salvation, and that's the key word. Maybe you have it translated perfection, which is what the uh, New King James has. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, and that's the Greek word uh, teleo or teleos, which has to do with completion, not perfection in the sense of, of a flawlessness, but completion. There's no complete salvation in the Old Testament because their, their salvation was provisional until the Messiah actually paid for sins on the cross. So the first thing that he's saying is that the completion of the plan of salvation could not take place through the Levitical priesthood because it, the Levitical priesthood, was incomplete. That's the first verse, Hebrews 7.11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, that's his initial clause. It's a second-class condition as we studied at the time, if and it's not. It wasn't possible, but he's making that uh, assumption even though it's not true. If perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, and then he's going to bring in the then clause in the second part, and that relates to the second point. But the first point is simply that the completion of the plan of salvation could not take place through the Levitical priesthood. It was impossible for any of the Old Testament ritual or ceremony to bring a complete salvation. It was simply a picture of what God would do. The second point of review is that he's saying that because the order of Aaron was insufficient, another order of priest was necessary. This is the second half of verse 11 where he says in the Apodosis, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron. His point is that if perfection, if a complete salvation were available through the Levitical priesthood, and it's not, what need would there be for another priest? But we do have another priesthood. We have another high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, and therefore, it was necessary to have this second priesthood who could, a second priest who could complete uh, the plan of salvation. 
And actually, what, he, what the writer is doing is he's, he's stating the same principle three or four different times from one angle, then another angle, then another angle. And he keeps repeating this just to make sure that these Jewish former priests who are now church-age believers understand the issue. It's called repetition, drilling it into them just to make sure that they get it. Third point that he makes is that the order of priesthood was tied to a particular covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. So the Aaronic priesthood was established by the Mosaic Covenant, and therefore the two are integrally related. You can't separate the Aaronic priesthood from the Mosaic Covenant. If one ends, the other ends. If one continues, the other continues, because the the Mosaic Covenant is a legal contract that establishes the uh, the order of Aaron as a priestly order. Which leads to point number four, a change in priesthood would therefore necessitate a change in the covenant. If you change the priesthood, you have to change the contract. And that's Hebrews 7.12, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. Now, this is a great passage that, that I really have not thought of in demonstrating the end of the law. Usually I go to a passage in, in Romans or in Galatians to demonstrate that the law has ended. But this is a much stronger passage to show that the Mosaic law ended because we have a different priesthood, the order of Melch- the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There is a different legal structure, a different covenant. And and what comes through in this whole section is how God grounds and establishes all of his relationships with man according to legal contracts. There's this legal structure there that I think has to go back to the basic concept of some sort of appeal trial uh, of Satan, that there's this judicial dimension. We're justified we will be eventually judged before the Supreme Court of Heaven. Uh, we have uh, imputation. All these terms are forensic terms. They're courtroom terms. They're not experiential, emotional, feel-good terms. They all have to do with that which is legally correct, and it's all laid out in legal documents known as, as covenants or contracts. So a change in the priesthood necessitates a change of covenant. Fifth, the Levitical priesthood was based on physical factors, not spiritual factors. You couldn't have certain physical defects and serve as a priest. You had to, uh, you had to be physically related to Levi to be a Le- Levitical priest and to Aaron to be a high priest. So you, there's no mention of any spiritual aspect to that to that priesthood. No indication of regeneration, no indication of, of that they're walking with the Lord or anything. Of course, that's what the Lord would desire, but that's not a prerequisite. What was required was genetic relationship to Levi, to Aaron, and they had to be uh, without physical defect. Hebrews 7.13, For he, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom these things that is related to the Melchizedekian priesthood, are spoken, belongs to another tribe. He was of the tribe of Judah. 
Someone from the tribe of Judah could not officiate in the temple service, which is what he concludes with, which no man has officiated at the altar. Only a Levite was qualified to go in and offer sacrifices at the altar and to serve in the, in the temple. The sixth point he makes is that Jesus was not of the tribe of Levi, so another order of priesthood was necessary. This, he says, is virtually self-evident. That since Jesus is not of the tribe of Levi, it is, it is, it is logically evident that, uh, that another priesthood is necessary. And then the seventh point he makes is that the Mosaic Code said nothing of another kind of priesthood. The word Hebrews is on the wrong line. The Mosaic Code said nothing of another kind of priesthood. This is what he states in verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. Now we're going to come back and look at this word evident because if you're looking at your Bibles, and you should be, you'll notice that verse 14 and verse 15 both have a statement that's translated into English uh, as if it's the same Greek word. Verse 14 reads, for it is evident, and verse 15 reads, and it is yet far more evident. Actually, they are two different words in the Greek. They have the same root, but they have different uh, different prepositions which indicate a, a greater intensification in the second word. The word here simply indicates something that is factually obvious. Something that is factually obvious. It's factually obvious that our Lord arose from Judah. Everyone could demonstrate that from his parentage. It was obvious to one and all that he was from the tribe of Judah and <clears throat> Moses said nothing and, and the Pentateuch about the tribe of Judah serving in the temple. It's a self-evident fact from, from, the, uh, from the scriptures. And then point number eight, he's drawing a conclusion and inference. Therefore, the Lord, as a Melchizedekian high priest, is manifestly superior to the Aaronic priesthood. Verse 15, and it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment. He had to be related to Aaron, had to be uh, related to Levi, no physical defects. That's what's meant by a fleshly commandment. But according to the power of an endless life. And that's really a key phrase there, the power of, he's focusing on the fact that, that Jesus is eternal, and, and, and his, so his priesthood would be eternal, and that's the point of the quote in verse 17. Now, as I pointed out already, the difference between these two words that are both translated evident in English. The first word is pra-delos, and the second word is kata-delos, delos being the root. Uh, in the first word, P-R-O, is your uh, prepositional prefix, and in the second word, kata is your prepositional prefix, and kata is a stronger uh, emphasis. It 
than uh, pra. The first one simply means something that is factually obvious or apparent. And the second word, kata uh, delos, indicates something that is more than factually obvious. It is an irresistible conclusion. It is overwhelmingly obvious. And so you can't escape this conclusion that it becomes uh, an irresistible conclusion that, and then we have the word if. And we do have a first-class condition set up here in the Greek, but the, but the if we don't, it expresses the, the uh, protasis, which is the first part of the clause. In any conditional clause, you have if and then. If this happens, then that happens. The if clause is called the protasis, P-R-O, indicates it comes first. The apotasis comes afterward. It follows. There's no apotasis here. And therefore, what he's basically saying is something along the, the idea that, and, and the and, and now I'm starting to get into the exegesis of this verse, the and is really shouldn't be translated and because that looks as if it's just adding something. But the chi here is used in an ascensive manner, something even more. So it should be translated something like, it is even more, uh, it is even more inescapably obvious since there arises, there has arisen, I mean, it's a, it's a present tense, but it has sort of a uh, perfective sense to it. It's happened with results that are continuing into the present. Uh, it is even more uh, intently obvious that another high priest has arisen in the likeness of Melchizedek. And we'll look at a corrected translation that I'll put on the board for you uh, in just a minute. But he's drawing, drawing a very strong conclusion based on the reality that there has, that because another high priest has arisen according to Melchizedek, it completely replaces the previous priesthood, and that implies a, a replacement of the previous covenant. Now, this is... He hadn't really introduced the word covenant yet, but he will uh, before we get too much f- further. He's just introduced law, but he starts talking about covenant a little later on in this section in 20 down to 28. But all of this is leading to chapter 8. And that's, that's a little, what's a little bit difficult about going through and, and uh, explaining this section from 11 to 28 because it's a transition. And he's not making strong doctrinal points. There's no imperatives here. There's nothing for, you know, mandates for you to go do or to think differently. He's simply drawing a very tight argument that if if there's a new priest, he's after the order of Melchizedek, if this priest is eternal, and we know he's eternal because he's a priest forever, that's going to be verse 17, uh, the quote from from Psalm 110.4, then that means that the former commandment's going to be nullified, and that's verse 18. And because of that, and then he goes on, he builds on that, so he's just sort of building one thing on another, just walking the readers through a logical thought process based on the fact that if Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, 
then that means the old covenant has ended, the ceremonial law has ended, and a new covenant has been put in place. And that's where he's going to end. And then he's going to unpack the whole idea of the new covenant in chapter 8 and then get into uh, the temple, sanctuary, and other things in chapter 9, which is going to all be based on an understanding of Old Testament uh, structures and ceremony in the tabernacle and temple. Okay. Let's go on. Verse 17. Let's make sure I covered everything. Okay, verse. let's go back. Verse 15. It's far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another prince, now th- another priest. Now, the word for arise is the Greek word onistemi, which means to cause to stand, to erect something, to raise or lift something up, to bring something back to life, almost in the sense of anastasis, which is uh, resurrection. Of course, that's a anastasis, anistemi. You hear the similarity? So anistemi is, is a cognate to anastasis, which is the word for resurrection. And uh, they, but he's not talking about resurrection here. He's talking about the idea of providing someone who is going to be to take a certain position. So in verse uh, 15, he says that uh, some there arises, there has been put into place, you might say, another priest, and this priest has come. Uh, not according to the law of fleshly commandments, but the power of an endless life. Okay, now let's get a corrected translation of Hebrews 7.15. Hopefully this will put that verse, give it a little better uh, significance for you. He says, and, you know, in the King James it says, and it is far more apparent if. What's the it refer to? Well, the it refers to this principle of a change in priesthood and Jesus' higher status. So we would read it this way. It, that is this principle of a change in priesthood, is even, ma- is even made exceedingly more evident since, um, since there is, I left the word is out, since there is another priest according to the order, oh, since, I shouldn't be a there, there. That's what the problem is. Since another priest according to the order of Melchizedek, is arisen. And I translate that is arisen because it's a present tense, but there's a use of the present tense that has a, in the Greek, it's, it's a perfective sense. Perfective means that it's completed action. And that's what it's talking about. He, he, he's already in place. That, that action at the ascension of Christ has already taken place, but he's focusing on the fact that there's ongoing results of the fact that Christ is risen and seated at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest. And this is what we have now. And it's so important that he is seated at the right hand of the Father and not ruling from the throne of David in heaven. See, if you have Jesus sitting on some kind of Davidic throne at the Father's right hand, which is what amillennialism teaches and what progressive dispensationalism teaches is that Jesus is on the throne of David ruling from the Father's right hand, it starts to destroy the significance of the present session of Christ as our high priest and all that we have in him as our high priest. 
because the Davidic rulership and the kingdom are essentially Jewish-oriented concepts. They are not church-age-oriented concepts. That's why we covered that uh, the last class I covered on the dispensational material when we looked at Acts chapter 2 and its use of the Old Testament and went through all those different passages showing that we're not in some form of the kingdom now. The kingdom is postponed and the kingdom doesn't come in until Jesus Christ returns at the second coming. Right now the focus is on the church where he is functioning as our high priest. Okay, now we get into verse 16. That he has come not according to uh, the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. And the point that he's making here is just very simple, and that is that the humans, the fallen human beings who were in, in, in the Aaronic high priesthood all died. Their, their lifespan was limited, and they, there, it was necessary to have a high priest who would not die, who would be eternal. And so this is brought out in the Greek word that is used here, uh, akatalutas, which has the idea of something indestructible in the temporal sense. His life can't be destroyed. It is therefore endless or eternal. And it's just a very simple point that, that he has come not according to the fleshly commandment for the, that those individuals would all die, but it's a power of an endless life for he testifies. Now, verse 17. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, he's been talking about this all the way back to the early part of this particular chapter. Talking about the Melchizedekian uh, priesthood. But the emphasis right now isn't on the fact that you are a priest. It's not on the last part of that that's quoted according to the order of Melchizedek. The only thing he's focusing on is that one word forever. Because he's a priest forever, that means that the Davidic king, that's the context of Psalm 110, 1 through 4, the Davidic king is also a priest, and he is an eternal priest. And so that means that that eternal priest that's mentioned there, that's based on the Melchizedekian order, is superior to the Levitical priest because Levitical priests die, but the Melchizedekian priest won't die. He'll be eternal. So that makes it a superior high priesthood. Now, I'm making another point here, and that is just on how the writers of Scripture in the New Testament often quote Old Testament passages. He quotes more than he needs, and all he's talking about is one word. Now, that's going to become important when we get into chapter 8, because when we get there, we're going to see this lengthy quote from the Old Testament, starting in uh, verse 8 of chapter 8. We're going to see this lengthy quote coming out of Jeremiah 31, uh, 31 to 34, and he's going to have a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 verse quotation. But he's not referencing anything else in that quotation other than the initial phrase, a new covenant. 
to show that the very term new covenant implied that the old covenant had to be temporary. He's not talking about anything else in that quote. When we looked at the issue on interpretation of Old Testament use in the New Testament in the last class, when we talked about Joel, I mean, uh, uh, Peter's quote of Joel 2 in Acts 2, that he really quotes this lengthy section out of Joel 2, but he's just focusing on a, a parallel, as it were. And he's not even giving any kind of exposition of all those verses. Now, to our mind, that's kind of strange because we're used to somebody, if you're going to quote eight verses, you're going to talk about everything in those eight verses. But in the Jewish mindset, you would just quote the passage because you wanted to make sure you had the context. But all you're talking about is one word in that in that quote. And this is just an example of that. He quotes these two stanzas from Psalm 110.4, only to focus on one word, and that is the word forever, that this, this Melchizedekian priest would be a priest forever. Then we get into a very crucial point in verse 18. This is just a great little passage. In verse 18 down to the first part of 19, we have three negative assessments, actually four negative assessments about the old dispensation, about the dispensation of the law. Four negative assessments about the dispensation of the law. And then in the last part of 19, we have two positive things said about the church age that correct the negatives from the Mosaic law. He says, for on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. Now, the word for indicates that he's going to give us an explanation of why, he, why, why all of this is the way it is. And his first statement is on the one hand, he's going to do a comparison, contrast between the old, test, the old law and the new dispensation. It says, on the one hand, there's an annulling of the former law. So the first negative is that the, law, the old law is annulled. And the Greek word there is athetesis, A-T-H. I don't have this written down. It's A-T-H-E-T-E-S-I-S. And it simply means that it is removed, set aside, abrogated, canceled, annulled, and rendered invalid. It's removed. It refers to something that is removed, set aside, abrogated, annulled, canceled, or rendered invalid. How much stronger language can you use? The Mosaic law is gone. It's no longer valid. It has been completely annulled. Athetasis. The former, and when he talks about the former commandment, he simply, it simply means that which is historically prior. He says it, the, on the one hand, there is an annulling, a complete canceling of the former commandment for two reasons. Because, first of all, because of its weakness. And the Greek word here is os, based on, is the word osthenes, which means that it has no power. It had no power to save. It had, uh, it was only basically a teaching tool, a ritual that pointed to something else. It was weak, it was impotent, it was without strength, and it was powerless. And the second thing he says about it is its unprofitableness. It's unprofitableness. And the Greek word here, anaphalos, means that it served no purpose. 
And that came to indicate that because something served no purpose, it could therefore become injurious, noxious, useless, and harmful. That something was there and now no longer served a purpose, so it could actually become harmful. So what he says about the law is, first of all, it's completely canceled. It's canceled because it was spiritually impotent. And it's canceled because it is harmful now, because it's been replaced by something higher. And then the last thing he says is in the first part of verse 19, for the law, we could almost uh, translate that uh, in terms of uh, an explanation almost causal, because the law made nothing complete. The law never saved anybody. We're going to have this long chapter coming up talking about the fact that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. Nothing in the law, nothing in the moral law, nothing in the ceremonial law, nothing in the civil law could provide anything of real spiritual value. It was all ritual that pointed to that which would have value, what was done at the cross. So that the Old Testament believer never had access to the kind of power, the kind of reality that you and I have as church-age believers. What we have is so far beyond anything they could ever imagine. I mean, we have a completed canon of Scripture, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have the filling of the Holy Spirit, but that barely touches what we have. And so he just mentions two things that we do have in the latter part of verse 19. These are the positive things that we have in this dispensation. First of all, it brought in a better hope. Now, this is not something, not saying that it can make us more hopeful. It's not talking about a, um, a something that is um, emotional. It's talking about the ground of our future expectation. Whenever we see the word hope in, in the New Testament, it doesn't have the idea of sort of an optimistic wish. Some of us have been wishing that a cold front would finally come through so it would cool things off a little bit and we would have a sense of fall in October. I hope a cold front makes it through this weekend. I hope it won't rain tomorrow. That's just optimistic wishfulness. That's not what the Bible means by hope. When we say, I hope something happens tomorrow, there's a level of uncertainty there. But when the Bible talks about hope, it talks about a certain future expectation. There is a definiteness about it. There's a certainty about it that something specific is going to happen. And this is our superior hope. It's superior to what they had in the in the uh, Old Testament because there wasn't that measure of certitude there. But with Christ, there is a better hope, a better ground for our future expectation through which, through that hope, that ground of expectation, we draw near to God because we are united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And more than that, we are seated with Christ. Hold your place and go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. This is a great passage. 
It's a fun passage to work through in the Greek because the first seven uh, verses are actually one sentence in the Greek. And I taught this last week when I was out in California at the WHW conference. This was the main passage I had them work through every morning in terms of diagramming and phrasing uh, the, the whole structure because Paul's real focus is on what happens with the main subject and the main verb. You don't get the grammatical subject of this long sentence until you get to verse 4. And you don't get to the verbs, and there's three verbs, until verses uh, 5 and 6. So you go through three verses of negatives before you ever get to the positive, and that sets up that contrast, uh, but God. And then Paul diverts in a relative clause, but God who's rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's the reminder of the negatives in verses 1 through 3, that we were born dead in our trespasses and sins and walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, all of those things. Now, he says, but God, but what did God do? Well, you have three verbs. Three. It's a compound uh, a compound verb, three different verbs, three different things God did. Even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, the first thing he did is he made us alive together with Christ. The second thing that he did was he raised us up together. And the third thing that he did was he made us sit together in the heavenly places with Christ. That is our salvation. That's why he has that interjection in the middle of verse 5, by grace you have been saved. He's summarizing with the word saved those three things, that we have been made alive together in Christ, raised and seated in Christ. That is where you and I are positionally, as we're seated in Christ at the right hand of the Father in the session. That's as close as Paul gets to dealing with the session in the Pauline epistles. But that's what we have. This is our magnificent salvation that has been provided for us. Back to Hebrews chapter 7. Now, none of that could be true unless the law was, was nullified. And so the law is completely nullified, completely canceled. And on the other hand, we, we have this better hope and we're able to draw near to God. Why? Because positionally, you are in Christ seated at the Father's right hand. You just have to look up at him. I mean, that's it. Positionally, we're just right there with the Father. So look, look at a couple of these other verses. This is a major theme in Hebrews. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly, and it's the same verbiage, to draw near the Father. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Same theme that we saw back in Hebrews 4, the priesthood of Christ, because we're seated at the Father's right hand. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And it's used again in our passage, Hebrews 7, and then it'll be used again as we get into the warning section to this part of Hebrews, Hebrews 10.1, for the law, having a shadow of the good things to come. See, that's the other reason it's canceled. It's just a shadow. It's just a, a, a typology. It's just a, a, a concrete uh, version of the spiritual realities that would come in with Christ. The law having a shadow of the good things to come and not 
the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who draw near complete. The Mosaic law couldn't do it. You can't do it on the basis of ritual and morality and sacrifices. It has to be grounded on the imputed righteousness of Christ and the completed work of his sacrifice on the cross. And then there's one other mention of this concept of drawing near in Hebrews 10.22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That last part is a picture, ver- verbal picture of what happens at the instant of justification in our positional cleansing that occurs uh, in, in the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit where we are placed into Christ and then seated at the Father's right hand. See how all these things come together. So often we take them as separate doctrines, but they all interconnect, and they all come together in that, that whole mysterious thing we talk about in being identified with Christ, being in Christ, and that, that whole concept of positional truth that we're so familiar with, we just say, oh, well, that's positional truth, yeah. Well, unpack it for the next five years. That is a fabulous doctrine that nobody really talks about or deals with, that our position in Christ gets us this proximity, this access, this nearness to the Father that no believer at any other time in history has. They didn't have it in the Old Testament. They're not going to have it in the tribulation. But we have that, and that is something that's going to be part of our uh, eternal relationship, even in the millennial kingdom, when we're the, as the bride of Christ, we're serving as what? As priests and kings. And we're in that training ground right now to learn how to be priests and kings. So verse 19 uh, finalizes this point that the law is ended. It's over with. So at this point, we get into verse 20. Melchizedek is virtually left behind, and the focal point from 20 to 28 is on the superiority of Jesus Christ, and that's a, that, which is established by a better covenant. Look at verse 20. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath. For, and then we have a parenthesis. The grammar here is kind of interesting. It's awkward, but it's or unusual, but it's interesting. Verse 20 makes your first positive sense. 20 to 22 is one sentence in the Greek. And as much as he was not made priest without an oath, and then you have a parenthesis. For they have become priests without an oath, that they being Levitical priests, Aaronic high priests. For they have become priests without an oath. See, there's the contrast. Jesus Christ was made a high priest on the basis of an oath. The Old Testament priests did not have an oath. Well, why is that important? Well, once again, the oath makes the legal contractual foundation more certain. It makes it more significant. It's more emphatic. It raises it to another level. The Old Testament priesthood was not founded on this kind of a legal oath. But Christ, Melchizedekian high priesthood is. 
Verse 21, explained the Old Testament. They become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him. And then we quote Psalm 110.4 again. And here it's a little bit lengthier quotation. Includes everything that we saw in 17, but more. He says, the Lord has sworn. And that's all he's talking. What's he talking about in these three verses? Swearing an oath. But he quotes, once again, he quotes four stanzas. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He quotes the whole thing to give us the content of the oath. That Christ is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then he draws his conclusion in verse 22. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. He has become a surety of a better covenant. That is, he has become a pledge of that better covenant, a seal. The fact that he has become a high priest according to this oath seals the contract. Now, the contract, as we'll see in chapter 8, is the new covenant. And that is sealed at the cross. This is the same thing Jesus is is talking about when when he is redefining the elements in the in the Passover meal at the Last Supper. And he says, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is given for you. The new covenant terminology there is the new contract. He's saying, my blood is the sacrifice that is going to establish this new covenant. Now, the new covenant, though, doesn't come into effect until the second coming. Because the new covenant isn't with the church. Now, I know Paul says that he's a minister of the new covenant. That's because new covenant blessings are applied to the church today, but we aren't a covenant partner. When you just skip, put, skip over to the next page. Uh, in Hebrews 8.8. 8. And, and, and the quote from Jeremiah 31.31. Because finding fault with them, he says, and here's the quote from Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah and with the church. Oh, you didn't see that there, did you? No, see, the church is never mentioned as a contract partner in the new covenant. The contract is between the Lord and Israel. And on the basis of that legal document, he is then able to bless the Gentiles. Sounds awfully, uh, an awful lot like the Abrahamic covenant, doesn't it? And it's just the expansion of that Abrahamic covenant. That everything that God does is based on this legal contract. Now, he doesn't have to do that. But he lowers himself for the benefit of the creature to de- in order to demonstrate his faithfulness, he enters into these binding legal contracts with his creatures uh, so that he can then be free to bless us and we understand what the parameters are for that blessing. So verse 22 says, By so much more, Jesus has become a pledge or a seal of our better covenant. And then verse 23 goes on to talk about the fact, the limitations of the other priesthood from another, also from the same dimension of this eternality. It says, also there were many priests. In the Old Testament, there were many priests. All the Levites 
could serve in the temple. Many of them were priests. You had Levites, and you had a, those that were qualified to serve in the temple could serve in the temple. And then you had the high priest. But you had to have so many because they all died. They could only serve uh, from the time that they were uh, 30 to the time they were 50. And then they had to quit. And you had to have other priests. So it's temporary. They don't have a permanent, uh, permanent service. So... Verse 23, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, in contrast, because he continues forever, he's a priest forever, Psalm 110.4, because he is a priest forever, uh, he has an unchangeable or immutable priesthood. Okay, now, what does that mean? What are the implications of that? Therefore, verse 25, Therefore, because he has an eternal priesthood that is superior to the Levitical priesthood, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives, he's not dead. When they sacrificed that lamb, that lamb was still dead. When they sacrificed the goats, the goat still dead. But he always lives to make intercession for them. This is one of the primary reasons we have eternal security. And it's reflected in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. He prays continually for the Father to keep us. And he never stops that prayer. And at his intercession is Jesus who keeps us saved. It's not our actions. It's not uh, by doing good. It's not by applying the word or any of the other things lordship, salvation people come up with or Arminians come up with to say that the way you stay saved is by being obedient. What you do has nothing whatsoever to do with the preservation of your salvation. It is preserved by the Lord Jesus Christ's faithfulness to his promise to save you. That's why you can know without a shadow of a doubt that you're saved. It's not based on anything that happens. You can fail miserably five seconds after you're saved and never recover for the rest of your life. And guess what? You're still saved because you're kept not by your perseverance. You're kept by Christ's power and by his prayer. Verse 25, therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Next point, explanation in verse 26. For such a high priest was fitting for us. He is holy, hagias, he's set apart, uh, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. So, the adjectives there, which I don't have time to go into tonight, I think I'm going to stop here just a little early. We're going to have to come back and look at each of those uh, adjectives, holy, harmless, get a correct translation of them. And then it ends with the fact that he's become higher than the heavens. And that takes us right back to what? The doctrine of the ascension. What has happened that Christ passed through the heavens and he is now higher than the heavens, the literal spatial terminology here, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And all of that has to do with what we have now in him as our high priest. So we'll start next time with verse 26, finish up this chapter, and then go into the next one. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to see the tremendous uh, dimensions 
of the, the teaching of Scripture related to the ascension and session of the Lord Jesus Christ, his present priesthood, and all that that means for us as believers. And as we go through this, Father, may we be challenged in our own spiritual life to recognize how much more we have and how much we've been given and how much you have supplied us so that no matter how difficult the task, how overwhelming the circumstances may be, uh, you will always provide the perfect solution and you will always provide for us. And you have given us everything we need in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.